0: You're listening to Take as Directed, a podcast on global health policy and the news, events, issues, and the people it affects. And the problem is the world is in a shortage of vaccine.
1: The health system perpetuates gender inequalities and restrictive gender norms. Because stigma, shame, and
0: fear is what drives this disease and keeps it in the dark. I'm Steve Morrison, director of the Global Health Policy Center at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C., In this podcast, you'll hear conversations led either by me or by my colleagues, Sarah Allender, Janet Fleischman, and Nellie Bristol, who serve as recurring hosts. We interview leaders fighting against malaria, polio, HIV-AIDS, the opioids epidemic, some of the biggest public health challenges of our time. Today, we're joined by Rebecca Martin, Director of the Center for Global Health at the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or CDC. Dr. Martin has had a long career at the CDC, working both domestically and internationally for over two decades in immunization, HIV-AIDS, and health system strengthening. Thank you for joining us, Rebecca.
1: Thank you, Steve. It's great to be here with you this
0: afternoon. So this conversation today, it's part of a mini-series focused on the CSIS Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security. We issued that report in the last quarter of last year in November. It includes many recommendations that are very specific to CDC. The work of the commission was begun two years ago with a very deliberate emphasis on lots of consultation, lots of engagement with executive agencies, very heavy emphasis upon the central role that CDC plays in health security, both at home and abroad, across a broad spectrum of areas. Rebecca, thank you. You were particularly generous with your expertise and your time over this whole two-year period, and we're very grateful to you for that. In this mini-series, we've sat down with Richard Hatchett, the head of CEPI, Coalition for Epidemics, Preparedness, Innovations. We propose a, a direct funding relationship and a much stronger cooperative relationship between the U.S. government uh, and sepi and we're hopeful that that may we may see that happen we sat down in another session with Jimmy Coker ambassador Coker's a commissioner a very active member of our commission we sat down with him and with Carolyn Reynolds formerly of the bank now an affiliate senior fellow with us also an expert in the way that multilateral institutions like the bank can structure their work to shape responses and investments in health security. We had a session there that looked at that one proposal to build a a challenge within the World Bank that would motivate countries over the years to invest higher. So keep those all in mind. We're using the podcast series to try and pull attention back to these features. And we're going to talk about three top-line topics here today with Rebecca. So in our commission report, one of our top-line recommendations is to get the Global Health Security Agenda funded at predictable and adequate levels over a long term. And we call for uh, significant increases in the annualized funding. The GHSA started with $1 billion in emergency funding. That funding has run out. We have a new budget that's come forward. Tell us, what's the current status of the financing and the programmatic efforts connected to CDC's role in the GHSA?
1: Thanks, Steve. And first of all, let me just say it was very encouraging to see the commission's report come out and to be able to see the recommendations. And as you mentioned, one of them is the sustainable, looking at the financing and and resources for this. And I think this is really critical. We have been very encouraged to see continued support from the administration and from Congress um, in global health security funding. And I think the, the main point to make here is that there has been progress, um, and I want to talk about it in three ways. Okay. So first of all, I had the opportunity this past July of 2019 to go to Sierra Leone and see one of the countries that was hit very hard by the Ebola outbreak 2014 through 2016, where it is now after five years of engagement on health security and system strengthening. And looking at that, we see now, them having a field epidemiology training program with strong disease detectives to be able to detect diseases such as measles, such as meningitis, such as loss of fever from the lowest levels and get that reported up in a timely way. We see that they have laboratory capacity, meaning that there are people in the laboratory, laboratorians who do the tests that have reagents and test kits to do that and to get results so that quickly there can be a response based on what it finds in terms of what is the disease. The third is that the establishment of the emergency operations center that happened during the Ebola outbreak of West Mm -hmm. Africa is a living and breathing room. It's not four concrete walls with desks and chairs, but it is the people in there that are having the command control, using that command control and coordination in a way to address other public health events and emergencies that have occurred since then. And then lastly, looking at the surveillance systems. Sierra Leone is a country that has now moved from the lowest level from the facilities. They are reporting on a regular basis through electronic means. Mm -hmm. They're no longer doing their paper and pen, but actually electronically reporting on a weekly basis to the provincial health departments, and then that's feeding up. So to see this progress is amazing. Now, I say all that with caution, recognizing that this is fragile. And what have been the
0: consequences, do you think, of uncertainty that has hung over, whether there will be continuity and predictability in the funding of GHSA? What has been the consequences? I mean, we see reports of CDC having to break down their programs and bring people home out of some of the focal countries. We hear from some of the partner countries themselves thinking, well, that's over. We know that there's a problem also in motivating really poor countries Mm -hmm. to make use of their own scarce budget resources towards these matters when there is great scarcity of resources and when there's so many competing demands. So this remains a very difficult area. I think getting this kind of story that you just told, getting that story out is very powerful, very powerful. It needs to get out more, and I think you guys have done a great job of beginning to – over the last several years document and put into very intelligible and compelling form the stories about this is what we've got.
1: Right, No, and I think to your point as I said earlier, is I think it's very exciting to see that we've had continued support from the administration and Congress in our budget to see the continuation of funds for global health security and that has been very positive.
0: We got a recent increase in FY20. From our budget, yes. So what, what was the increase?
1: So we receive now about $125 million um, for FY20, which is very exciting to see that.
0: So that was a $75 million increase.
1: Yes, exactly. Does
0: that put us back up at the level where we were before?
1: No, it does not put us up at the level we were. And I think this is where our director, Dr. Redfield, is very strong on recognizing the importance of health security globally and how that connects to America's domestic preparedness and that continuum and the need for that.
0: So what's the continued gap between where we were before and where we are today?
1: It varies. But I would say that, as, as I said, Dr. Redfield is very committed and we are not leaving any of the countries that we're collaborating with at this Mm -hmm. point in time. Uh, We are still committed to working with them and figuring out how to do that. And as U.S. government has been a leader in the global space, working closely, Australia, South Korea, for example, leveraging other bilateral relationships to make sure the work can continue and that there is sustained funding for these efforts as well. But
0: we still need to... Keep the pressure on to go higher.
1: There's always an opportunity to do more. And there is, as I said, fragile progress that we cannot stop or or we will slide back. And I think one of the things we've seen with measles outbreaks has been when you stop intervening, when you stop having the preparedness and the prevention, diseases will come back. So it is important we continue. Thank you.
0: Let's shift to measles here. Just recently, the WHO issued this dramatic and alarming report about Measles reported that in 2018 there were almost 10 million estimated measles cases, 9,769,000. In 2018, that's a staggering number, and that with that came more than 140,000 deaths for a disease that's preventable by vaccines. And this has become a globalized crisis. Obviously, it's a crisis for Americans, too. We had 1,200 cases, I believe, right, right. in this past year. And in 2000, we were declared free of measles. So something's happening. Something's growing wrong. We are trying to put a spotlight on this problem mm-hmm. in the commission report. And we didn't start the work of the commission with the idea that this was going to be a central focus. But it became one. And, uh, and our commissioners were demanding that it be incorporated as a communications crisis, as a crisis of trust and confidence, as one that's driven by all sorts of different actors who are outside the public health field, in which you have a great hazard for precipitous things happening suddenly out of the blue. Things can dramatically reverse. We've seen that in Pakistan on community resistance, on polio, mm-hmm. a recurrent problem. So tell us, let's start with the measles crisis. How did this happen in your view? How did we get to this moment of a global crisis?
1: I think want to say here first of all is how can it happen could say very simply is that kids are not getting vaccinated. Now, the why about that is multifactorial. Yes. The why of access. Do people have access to measles vaccine and to which is needed two doses with 95% coverage in a community to ensure that there is protection? Mhm and they also then is there demand for measles vaccine or are people saying i don't see I'll the defer, disease or i don't yes. need it i don't need it you got vaccinated so i don't have to get my children vaccinated yes. it happens somewhere else it doesn't happen here and you see as those opportunities where we see more and more people not vaccinated when the virus is introduced and it is a highly transmissible virus when it's introduced it will find everybody who is not immune to it, who has not been either protected through vaccine or had disease. So it can spread rapidly. And these are the two, you know, looking at the why is access. Uh, We have seen that there have been geographic areas where it's not been able to reach, insecure areas um, in Syria, for example, where vaccine has not been able to be given for cohorts of birth, children who've been born in the recent years who may not have been had access. That builds up your population that is not immune and as soon as it's introduced it takes over and takes fire Uh, and this is happening all around the world you've mentioned we've talked about Ukraine uh, Democratic Republic of Congo is one of the worst now with over 6,000 deaths 310,000 cases in 2019 this is tragic and this is about the access. Are we making sure we're finding every child? So we child? know
0: that there's a systems dimension to this, right? There's yes. the absence of functioning health systems or the weakness, yes. the lack of political will to make sure that the children are reached, the disorder that creates great problems of access, blockages of access that take all sorts of forms. But we also know that we are in an era of the internet and social media, and we're 20 years into this. And we are in a period where, if you're looking at cyber attacks, if you're looking at white supremacy, um, if you're looking at anti-Semitism, you have falsehoods that are propagated, disinformation, a communications crisis where. Bad actors can out-communicate everybody else that you have a fallen trust in authorities and in science itself that has become a factor. We see this played out in these other areas of white supremacy and cyber warfare and anti-Semitism. Now we have it really played out in public health and with vaccines in a dramatic way. Do you agree and do you agree that the CDC has a terribly important role to play in upgrading our approach in this communications crisis, in bringing quality and reliable science to a nervous public that may be confused on who to trust and who to believe.
1: No, it was it was actually very exciting and encouraging to see this in the Commission's report about the need for public health crisis and risk communications and strengthening. Uh, CDC plays a critical role um, in addressing the misinformation out there and how to correct that and provide yeah. science and data-driven information um, and evidence for this. And we are working closely with some of the big players in some of the internet space about this as well and how we can make sure that this can be done.
0: Can you tell me, in the case of the United States right Our 1,200 cases. They're very concentrated in New York, in uh, Williamsburg, in Rockland County, North, yeah. and then a couple of other. Uh, there was heavy emphasis within certain, uh, I- somewhat isolated communities. Whether you're talking Ukrainians in Washington State or yes. Somali Americans in Minnesota, right? Are you seeing progress in regaining the public that that middle, that anxious middle, that's out there that is legitimate questions to ask about? Should I be vaccinating my child or not? And they're looking for answers. Are you seeing some progress in the polling data or your own collection of data that the messaging is starting to pay off and people are – getting more confident, You bring up a,
1: a very important point is that sort of, as you're saying, that group in the middle, who will go towards saying, I won't get vaccinated, or who could go to say, yes. yes, it's important to vaccinate, and addressing that population. And in order to reach them, it really is working with the communities and having the community leadership and peer-to-peer education and discussion. So that's been very incredibly important, especially uh, in looking at some of these outbreaks, is finding the key influential leaders in communities Communities to deliver those messages. And we have seen through them that there has been increases in uptake of measles vaccination. So are you
0: more engaged than you were before? And in, for, for instance, in building your relationships with the Orthodox Jewish community, or the Somali American community, or the Migrant Ukrainian community.
1: These have been very important is linking with the communities and, and working with, you know, with the state health departments as well mm-hmm. through this to do this. Mm-hmm. But, yes, very important and globally as well. I mean, this is happening in, in Sweden and Norway, too. It's reaching those mm-hmm. same populations. So making sure that there are trusted and credible relationships and partnerships before – events occur so that when something does, you have that relationship to be able to intervene and bring strong prevention to stop outbreaks. Do you outbreaks. think that
0: something is needed at, as a major concerted national level? I mean, I take your point about mm-hmm. you need to look at specific communities. You need to understand how their leadership. What do they trust? Yes. Who do they trust? If they don't trust you, you got to figure out how to make that happen, right? Yes. But we also, you know, you could also argue that you have to come at the problem in multiple levels. You got to be talking to social media,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: algorithms matter.
1: Yes, all of
0: that. In terms of filtering out falsehoods or marginalizing false, deliberate falsehoods, bringing credible science forward at the first. So I want to hear a little bit about your engagement with social media. Yes. I also wanted to ask about, you know, has the moment arrived where we should be thinking about maybe what kind of national effort, over sustained over several years, where CDC could play a very vitally important role. What kind of national effort would make sense today? So there's two questions.
1: Yeah. No, on the first one, definitely engaging with such things as Google and Facebook and ensuring that true strong evidence and scientific information is provided first when people are doing searches on uh, the internet is critical. And that has been some of the work both globally and nationally that have been undertaken is how to make sure that people are given true scientific information uh, and that is up first in front before misinformation appears. Uh, And that's been a strong effort on that. In your second part of your question, long term, I mean, reaching children now and educating them about Mm -hmm. the importance of Mm -hmm. vaccines is a long-term effort and is really critical in terms of for the next cohort of parents, uh, making sure that they will vaccinate their children and they see the value of vaccines. This has been an effort of educating children on the importance of vaccines and how vaccines work.
0: So one entry point is the curriculum of education, early early education. Exactly,
1: exactly. And
0: we don't do enough today in order to build the basic understanding and knowledge among people
1: and how vaccines work and why they're important. I think those are really critical questions so that if somebody understands how a vaccine is made and how it is used and how it works, they're more trusting in terms of understanding about whether they should get themselves or their children vaccinated do and that's you, been critical.
0: Do you think we need to be a little more candid around what some of the risks are? I mean, the there are risks associated with vaccines and it seems to me that the, the anti-vaccine Uh, movement, magnifies that into colossal Mm -hmm. proportions. And so what's the best antidote to that? Is it to be a little more upfront about what the risks are so that you establish, yes, every medical procedure has a risk. Every medicine, every vaccine, Mm -hmm. We have to live with this, understand it.
1: No, it's very important, Steve, and and bottom line is that vaccines save lives. And I think the the value of people understanding how a vaccine is made, how a vaccine works, um, and all of the components help people make those decisions in terms of understanding that vaccines are important uh, in reducing mortality and death. And I think this is the area to focus on is how we strengthen the communication and educate young um, people today about how vaccines are made but and But do you why. think
0: we're doing enough, are we are we adequately addressing up front what the
1: risks are?
0: are you, that we're already doing that or? It's an awkward thing, right? I mean, you don't wanna
1: spotlight this, but you don't wanna ignore it. You don't want to ignore it. You wanna make sure that that's a component of, of, of the messages, argument. of your argument, of the importance of that vaccines, yes. Okay.
0: When you were talking about reaching children, I remembered that back in the Obama administration, Americans were very cautious around vaccinating adolescent girls and boys, but particularly adolescent girls against cervical cancer. And after the safe and effective vaccine arrived in, was it 06 or 07? By the early years, 12, 13, it was becoming clear that the the coverage levels were way too low within our country. President Obama created a year-long commission that looked at this, and they came up with a wonderful report that had a number of conclusions. But I think one of the biggest conclusions and most powerful was providers, in this instance, provide where they're talking about a sexual matter. You're talking about parents, and you're talking about adolescent girls who are on Mm -hmm. the edge of puberty. And you have all of those sensitivities woven into this, that the provider, the medical provider, is the critical communicator in this case. And so they put a big emphasis on how to get the doctors that that are interacting with parents and young girls and young boys to be better informed and more confident and more assertive around, no, this is not something you want to wait about. And there are serious risks in not doing this. So I just mentioned that because it seems like your point about we got to reach kids in a different way. Also, you could make a case that you need to get the doctors and other providers in feeling more confident and better equipped.
1: Absolutely, I think, as you said, they are a key interlocutor in this relationship and making sure that they feel comfortable um, and building that relationship is critical and having the information that they need is, and that's something also that CDC does working with providers um, to make sure that they have critical and scientific information about vaccines to share. Can you say a word
0: about the current situation on the effort to eradicate polio is, in its end game, we're down to the wild virus, the endemic virus, only present in Afghanistan and Pakistan. We're hoping it clears in Nigeria. But we've also had this proliferation of, in 2019, I think about 220 cases yeah, of yeah. what's called vaccine-derived poliovirus. Tell us a bit why are we seeing that, and then it seems to me it's a very complicated communications challenge in this case.
1: Yeah, so the circulating vaccine-derived polyvirus outbreaks that have been occurring are occurring in countries that have low immunization coverage overall. And it's because, again, not reaching children with vaccines that save lives. And this is an important piece of the of the equation. Uh, you'll remember that we had the switch um, yes. where we moved from trivalent OPV vaccine to bivalent. That was in
0: 2016. Exactly.
1: And we dropped out the type 2 yes. serotype of the virus in the vaccine. Um, And this is the type of outbreaks we're mainly seeing are the type um, 2. So why are those happening? Because it's not part of the vaccine anymore. And as I said, with countries not vaccinating with high coverage, um, there's opportunities now. Once. The virus is introduced, and it's a it's goes through your you know system, and it goes out into the environment. It has a chance to mutate and go back Correct. to to being an opportunity to infect others. And this is what we're trying to stop. And there's a lot of effort ensuring that we use uh, the monovalent OPV vaccine type two to stop these outbreaks. The communication challenge is the importance of ensuring that we have strong immunization programs that are reaching children with polio vaccines. Um, And then the understanding of the value of vaccine again, that we still need to use these vaccines at this time to make sure that we can stop these outbreaks.
0: And the fact that some people who may want to be skeptical about polio vaccines pointing to these cases and saying, well, look, I mean, we have to have a response to that, that you still need to protect yourself.
1: Exactly. The vaccine is the only way to stop the spread of the virus, and we need to make sure that we continue to vaccinate. Let's
0: talk a little bit about insecurity and conflicts, which we make a central dimension of the commission's report. We're talking about how the danger levels have risen, that insecurity and conflicts are proliferating throughout the world, and that that's the case, especially in areas where we're seeing a lot of outbreaks. So access and insecurity become very important. CDC's developed the global rapid response team, and they're moving towards regional hubs, getting closer to the action, greater on-the-ground presence, which I think is is a wonderful step to be able to respond better. What do you think it will take? What more will it take to deploy civilian experts into these insecure settings? You're living with the DRC day-to-day. You're living with all of these other options. It's terribly important that our people, our experts, get to the source of the outbreak quickly and not be delayed and not be sidelined
1: the most important thing cdc does to in these insecure settings is building national capacity towards this and this is our field epidemiology training program yes. people from the countries uh, who live in these different mm-hmm. areas who are trained to be epidemiologists, to investigate disease detectives, to go and investigate? Right. Who can monitor? Who can do contact tracing? Who can get samples? So that domestic capacity that building is very has to be critical. It has to be a priority to have that domestic capacity. The value of also thinking about periodic uh, interim interventions when you know the importance of being able to work with other sectors and getting data and information to know, can you go into an area at this particular point in time? Uh, With polio, there have been days of tranquility in the past when fighting has stopped and there's been an opportunity to go in. So looking for those windows as well and being ready and flexible to have your staff to be able to go into an area and to deliver either the intervention, a vaccine, a medicine, or to be able to do surveillance is important and be able to get out. But domestic capacity is important. Yes. We've been looking also at how to provide remote supervision, remote technical assistance, um, right. either through technology, but also looking at what other um, satellite imagery is out there to understand where populations are, to understand how people can reach them. Right. Um, but these are some of the key things and finding out who can be in these areas. But it is important that everybody remains safe and secure.
0: I agree with you that training of capacity over the long term remains vitally important. And uh, FETP is one of the best tools that we have in that area. I also believe that, yes, we can make better use of technology and surveillance that we have to understand. We need a more granular intelligence on what the insecurities look like. We can't just make blanket statements. We can't go there because a couple bad things have happened in a very fluid situation. It seems to me we need to have better communications, better intelligence, Mm -hmm. better training in terms of how teams can operate in these insecure environments and be deployed and and enter and exit safely and be able to operate and be nimble at responding to these. And we propose that we take the pre-existing capacities, CDC, AID, and build off of that and give folks a little bit extra in terms of team training And make them more intrepid, make them more expeditionary in their ability. Mm -hmm. Get our confidence up that we can manage the risky and insecure. Not all. There's going to be some needs, some situations that are no-go. But in today's world, it seems like we face too many dangerous things where we can't be sidelined in all of those. Do you agree?
1: I think that there are ways that we need to figure out how to work in these insecure areas. And you're right. It's not one type of insecurity and it's not continuous as well. So to your point about making sure that data are available and that the analysis of these data on a regular basis is critical. So when are those opportunities to be able or where you think it may next occur? uh, And how do you ensure that there is something set up so that there can be services? You know, and there are communities that live in these. Areas. So again, the importance of working with communities and building the capabilities within them, but as well the trust. So when things happen, that people can have a connection is really critical. But it is important that we have the data and the information and multi-sector teams. I think that is really important uh, in going in and looking at yeah. these areas together.
0: Yeah. You know, the the experience that you've had in DRC, it's been a painful experience in terms of inability to get in until recently in the hot zone and we paid a huge price for that. And I'm delighted to hear from you that you've begun to get some short-term access into Butembo and others, other places and that you're not operating under a blanket exclusion anymore. That's very good.
1: I think this has been important, but it has taken, as I said, all of USG effort in this in looking at when is the opportunity, what is needed, how do we make sure people stay safe, um, but that we get experts where they're needed.
0: Just one last question. Tell us a bit about what's the rationale in moving towards the regional hubs? What will that give you in terms of extra capacity?
1: The regional hubs will allow CDC to have a sustainable footprint and ability to work with multiple countries in certain regions around the world. Um, so it will uh, make sure that we can continue to build capacity, that we can continue to support outbreaks, that we can continue to make sure countries are prepared as they build their capacity. And where for will those. they be? This is still being developed and still okay. being discussed. Okay. So more to come
0: on that. Is it something that's going to require substantial? buy-in from Congress and from within the other parts of the administration?
1: Already it has has had some discussion on that and I think things are going very well for that front, yes.
0: Good. Well, I'm encouraged to hear that and I do believe that in terms of the disorder we face and the danger of outbreaks, that having our personnel closer to the action on a continuous basis becomes terribly important in not much of the knowledge and understanding of what's going on in these places is in the networks of populations that are in that environment and who are crossing borders and circulating. It's not in Atlanta or Washington, D.C.
1: No, it's important for domestic health security as well and preparedness that we know what's happening everywhere around the world and allowing us to be there to have that information to stop outbreaks, to stop prevention of diseases before they leave borders is even more valuable uh, in protecting the United States and Americans.
0: Thank you for joining us. This has been great. I just want to mention that we had a previous podcast of Take As Directed with your colleague, John Verdevoy, focused on the circulating vaccine derived polio, which was excellent. I'm very grateful for that. And our our listeners, if they want to know more about that particular topic, please dial up that one. Thank you so much. It's great to have you with us.
1: Thank you, Steve. Great to be here today.